Thank you for listening to the Starburns Audio Podcast Network. We have so many great comedy shows to add to your playlist. Just last week on Starburns Audio, on emotional support, Alessandra is joined by her guest, Anch. They talk all about mental health, dealing with loneliness while moving to a different country, and becoming Paris Hilton's BFF. On Dumb Gay Politics, Julie and Brandy interview the high school senior whose viral tweet to President Obama led to his historic nationwide graduation commencement address. In the season one finale of Musicals That Never Made It, Gabe and the gang are joined by Broadway's Drew Gelling for an inspirational show about the magic of self-worth in the great Zazim. On that black-ass show, comedian and actor Jamar Neighbors joins host Dulce Sloan in discussing the cultural impact of the movie Friday. Search Starburns Audio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcast platform for a full list of our shows featuring hosts like Gilbert Gottfried, Paula Poundstone, and Kyle Kinane. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Starburns Audio. Enjoy the show, and remember, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep laughing. Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, The Green Bicycle Murder. But first, your true crime headlines. In Georgia, two men are facing murder charges for the shooting death of Ahmad Arbery, who was killed while jogging through his neighborhood. Arbery, a black man, was confronted by two white men, Gregory McMichael, 64, and his son Travis McMichael, 34, who claimed that they thought Arbery looked like the suspect in a string of recent burglaries in their neighborhood. Cell phone video footage from the last moments of Arbery's life show him jogging down the road and encountering the McMichael's pickup truck. A struggle between Travis McMichael and Ahmad Arbery ensued, and Travis McMichael shot Arbery twice, killing him. No charges were initially filed after the broad daylight murder, sparking outrage across Georgia and the rest of the country. Gregory McMichael is a retired law enforcement officer who worked as an investigator for the district attorney's office. Because of conflicts of interest, the case is on its third prosecutor, who finally agreed to ask a grand jury to bring charges against the two men. The video was filmed by a third man, William Roddy Bryan, who was a neighbor of the McMichaels. It is unclear whether he will also be charged in the crime. A 58-year-old Iowa man has been charged with the murders of three women in the early 1990s after investigators were able to link him to the crimes by using forensic genealogy. Clark Perry Baldwin was charged with two counts of murder for the killing of 32-year-old Pamela Rose McCall and her unborn fetus. McCall was found strangled to death in a town outside of Nashville in 1991. She was pregnant and had last been seen with a truck driver. Baldwin worked as a truck driver for most of his career. In addition to the murder of Pamela McCall and her unborn fetus, Baldwin is also charged with the murders of two unidentified women, whose bodies were found in Wyoming in 1992. Forensic genealogy 
is a process that takes DNA from a crime scene and matches it with profiles on public genealogy databases. It has been instrumental in solving numerous high-profile cold cases around the country. Police suspect that Baldwin may be responsible for several other unsolved murders, and they believe that he was likely a serial killer. Baldwin is being held at the Black Hawk County Jail in Iowa pending extradition to Tennessee. A Michigan man was arrested for allegedly wiping his nose on a dollar store employee's shirt after she told him that he needed to wear a mask inside the store. Rex Gommel, 68, was booked into the Oakland County Jail on assault and battery charges. According to police, Gommel was inside the Dollar Tree store when an employee said that he needed to wear a mask. Police said that the store had signs up telling customers that they must wear a mask to enter the store. When the employee told him that he needed to wear one, she said he walked over and said, Here, I will use this as a mask, and then wiped his face on the sleeve of her shirt. Police say that the man was loud and disruptive before finally leaving the store. Gommel faces up to 93 days in jail and up to a $500 fine if convicted. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the green bicycle murder. But first, a quick break. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? I think I know the answer to that. It's time to get better help. If you've been thinking about talking to someone, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional caring therapist. This is not a crisis line, and it's not self-help. BetterHelp is professional counseling done securely online, and you can start communicating in under 24 hours, right from the comfort and safety of your own home. There is a broad range of expertise available. The service is available worldwide, and you can log in at any time to send a message to your counselor. You'll receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in a waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, but they make it easy and free to change your counselor if you need to. Plus, it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read the testimonials for yourself. Like this review written by a BetterHelp user after two weeks of counseling with Rachel Adams. Rachel is understanding and open. She provides a kind ear and solid, compassionate advice. Or this one about Diane Gores. She is helpful and intuitive. Very thankful for her advice. Start getting better help today. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MurderMinute. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P. And join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. 
That's 10% off your first month for Murder Minute listeners at betterhelp.com slash murder minute. Welcome back to Murder Minute. On Saturday evening, July 5th, 1919, a farmer named Joseph Cowell was herding cattle near the village of Little Stretton, Leicestershire, when he noticed a dark-haired young woman laying alongside Gartry Road. The sun was beginning to set. The man moved closer. There was blood on her face, and she wasn't moving. A bicycle lay nearby. To Cal, she appeared to have been run off the road by a motorist. He rushed into town to fetch the authorities and a doctor. They arrived to the scene after nightfall. Constable Alfred Hall and Dr. Williams examined the scene by candlelight. They agreed with Cal's conclusion. The young woman had suffered a fatal accident. They decided to call it a night. The body was placed on a milk cart and taken to an unoccupied home nearby. But Constable Hall couldn't sleep that night. Something was off, and he wasn't ready to dismiss the young woman's death as an accident. At first light, he returned to the scene. Where the body had lay, there were what appeared to be bloody bird prints. A dead crow lay nearby, and there was blood smeared on a cattle gate to the adjacent field. But no footprints around the gate. Constable Hall crouched down and started looking in the soil. Seventeen feet from where the body had lain, slightly embedded in the ground, by the imprint of a horse's hoof, he felt a hard lump in the soil and pulled out a four fifty-five caliber bullet. Constable Hall rushed to where the girl's body had been stored. He washed the congealed blood off her face, and there it was, a bullet hole, just below her left eye. This was no accident. It was murder. Constable Hall informed Dr. Williams. A full post-mortem concluded that the victim had been shot once, from a distance of between six and seven feet and the bullet had exited the rear of the victim's skull. The victim now also had a name. The body was identified by relatives as 21-year-old Annie Bella Wright. Bella, as she was known, was born on July 14, 1897, making her just shy of her 22nd birthday. Bella was the oldest of seven children, born to an illiterate farm laborer, Keenus Wright, and his wife, Mary Ann. The family lived in a small stone cottage just outside Leicester in the village of Stoughton. Bella was like many young ladies of her class and time. She had attended school until the age of twelve, when she began to work as a domestic servant to a wealthy local family. 
1914, the war broke out, and with male laborers scarce, Bella, like over a million other women, took a factory job. The roles of women in society were changing. The Roaring Twenties were right around the corner, and the women's suffrage movement had recently won women the right to vote. With so many young men off fighting the war, modern young women like Bella had spent the last few years earning their own money and enjoying freedoms previously denied to them. From 2 p.m. till 10 p.m., Bella worked in a tire manufacturing factory named Bates Rubber Works in St. Mary's Mill. The factory was five miles from her family cottage, and every day Bella could be seen cycling to and from work on her bicycle. But on Saturday, July 5th, it was Bella's day off. She slept in and spent the late morning and early afternoon writing letters to her friends and her boyfriend, a young sailor named Archie Ward, who in July was serving offshore as a Navy stoker in Portsmouth. Her family believed them to be discussing marriage. But Bella may have also had another suitor. She told her mother that a young officer had fallen in love with her. In the afternoon, after she had finished mailing her letters, Bella decided to visit her uncle, George Measures, four miles away in Galby. She got on her bicycle and set off. Somewhere along the way, Bella's bicycle malfunctioned, and Bella found herself in a jam, bent over a loose wheel. She looked up to see a young man approaching her on a distinctive green bicycle. The man offered his assistance. Bella asked if he might happen to have a spanner to tighten the loose wheel. He didn't, but he offered to accompany Bella to her uncle's cottage, an offer that Bella politely accepted. Along the way, the two were observed on their bicycles by several witnesses. When Bella arrived to her uncle's home, he asked her, about her friend on the green bicycle. Oh, him? Bella told her uncle. I don't really know him at all. He's been riding alongside me for a few miles, but he isn't bothering me at all. He's just chatting about the weather. After visiting with her uncle for about an hour, it was time for Bella to go home. She stepped out of the cottage, and much to her and her uncle's surprise, the young man hadn't left. There he stood, with his green bicycle, waiting for Bella. The man gave her uncle the creeps, but Bella was unconcerned. I hope he doesn't get too boring, she joked, adding, I shall try and give him the slip. It was 8.50 p.m. when Bella and the stranger on the green bicycle rode away. Half an hour later, Bella was dead. After police learned of Bella's movements that evening and the mysterious man on the green bicycle, police theorized that she had for some reason 
attempted to flee from him, and that he had then shot Bella Wright dead and fled the scene. From the description provided by her uncle and other eyewitnesses, wanted posters were distributed, seeking a broad-faced, dark-haired man, aged between 35 and 40 years old, height between 5'7 and 5'9, and word quickly spread to keep an eye out for his distinctive pea-green bicycle. On July 10th, a bicycle repairman, Harry Cox, informed police that on the previous day he had repaired a green bicycle for a man matching the description. The man had also remarked that he was going for a ride in the country. Seven months passed. Then, in February of 1920, a barge on the river Soar hooked an underwater obstruction. A green BSA bicycle. A local laborer, Samuel Holland, came forward to say that on his night shift he had witnessed a man throwing parts of a green bicycle into the river. Though an attempt had been made to file off the bike's serial number, it remained visible, and police traced it to a shop in Derby, where records identified its buyer. And 34-year-old war veteran Ronald Light was arrested on March 4, 1920. Ronald Light lived alone with his mother. The senior Mr. Light a successful plumbing parts inventor and civil engineer had died in the early years of the war, possibly committed suicide. Ronald Light, it turned out, had a troubled past. In 1902, at age 17, he was expelled from the respected Oakham School following allegations of improper conduct after he, quote, lifted a little girl's clothes over her head. Around the time of the war, he admitted to improper conduct with an eight-year-old girl and was accused of attempted sexual activity with a 15-year-old girl. He was fired from a job on the railways after allegations of arson and vandalizing station property with indecent graffiti in the lavatory, and dismissed again from another job at a farm for setting fire to haystacks. He first joined the war effort as a commission officer in the Royal Engineers, but later lost his commission. In 1916, he rejoined as a gunner with the Honorable Artillery Company. In 1917, he was court-martialed for forging move orders. Ronald Light had recently been sent home after three years of service. He was classified as suffering from severe shell shock and partial deafness and ordered to return to England for psychiatric treatment. Upon his arrest for murder, Ronald Light denied ever having met Bella Wright or owning a green bicycle. When police told him that the serial number had confirmed his purchase of the bicycle nine years ago, Ronald claimed to have sold the bike 
to someone whose name he couldn't remember. But when he was positively identified by the bicycle repairman, Bella's uncle, and numerous other eyewitnesses, Ronald Light finally admitted that he was the man who had been riding with Bella Wright on the day of her murder. He claimed, however, that the two had parted ways at King's Norton, and that that was the last he had seen of her. Ronald told police that he didn't know of Bella's death until July 8th, when he read an article about it in the Leicester Mercury. He said he worried over the matter for some time, and then decided to get rid of the bicycle. On March 19th, an army pistol holster issued to Ronald Light, and bullets matching the one which killed Bella Wright were also pulled out of the river. On June 9, 1920, the trial of Ronald Light for the murder of Bella Wright began. He pleaded not guilty. His defense was led by Sir Edward Marshall Hall, a successful barrister who was known as the Great Defender. Ronald Light was portrayed as an upstanding ex-army officer from an upper-middle-class background, in contrast to Bella, a poor factory girl born to illiterate parents. At the trial, two girls aged 12 and 14 testified that Ronald Light chased them on their bicycles on the afternoon of the murder, but they were able to make their escape. His previous record for assaulting young girls, however, was not revealed to the court. Ronald Light spent four hours on the witness stand. Although he openly admitted the gun holster, the bullets, and the bicycle were all his, he adamantly denied the murder. Asked whether he was the killer, Ronald replied, Certainly not. He admitted to poor judgment in failing to step forward as a witness and by discarding the bicycle. He blamed shell shock from the war and claimed that he panicked. When Bella Wright was murdered, I knew from newspaper reports the next day that she was the girl I had been with just before she died. He testified. I knew the police wanted to question me. I became a coward again. I never told a living soul what I knew. I got rid of everything that could have connected me with her because I was afraid. I see now, of course, that I did the wrong thing. The prosecution pointed out that Ronald Light had attempted to file off the serial numbers before sinking his bike, and that the bullets found in the river matched the one that killed Bella Wright. They also pointed out that Ronald Light lied again and again after his arrest, changing his story whenever confronted with the evidence. The prisoner is no ordinary man, Prosecutor Gordon Hewitt said, but one who is extremely clever and deliberate in his actions. The defense suggested that Bella Wright could have been hit by a shot fired from far away, perhaps by a bird hunter. 
He argued a close-up shot, as in the police theory, would have caused much more injury to the young girl than what was found. He highlighted a lack of motive in the case, focusing on the fact that there was no assault and no robbery. And he introduced the idea that some mystery person was the one responsible for the murder. This theory and Ronald Light's explanation were evidently enough to instill sufficient reasonable doubt within the minds of the jurors. On June 12, 1920, after three hours' deliberation, the jury acquitted Ronald Light of all charges. As the jury announced their verdict, congratulatory shouts went up in the courtroom. Well done, Light. Well done, Light. After his acquittal, Ronald Light disappeared. For a time, he assumed the name Leonard Estelle and moved to the Isle of Sheppey in Kent. In 1934, he married a war widow and mother of three, Lillian Lester. Her husband, Sergeant Ernest Lester, had also served with the Royal Engineers and was killed in action in 1917. Following his death, Lillian abandoned her two young sons in an orphanage, fearing that she wouldn't be able to support them on her widow's pension. Her daughter stayed with her. Lillian and Ronald had no children together. His stepdaughter knew nothing about his involvement in the death of Bella Wright until after his death in 1975 at the age of 89. Years later, an apparent confession was uncovered in police archives of the case. The typewritten account was found in the notes of Superintendent Levi Bowley and was allegedly written three days after Ronald Wright's acquittal. Ronald Light went into a police station to collect some belongings. There, he confided in the officer that he had, in fact, killed Bella, but insisted that it was an accident. He also said that he would deny the story if it ever became public. The alleged confession reads, I did shoot the girl, but it was completely accidental. We were riding quietly along. I had my revolver in my raincoat pocket, and we dismounted for her to look at it. I had no idea there was a loaded cartridge in it. Her hand was out to take it when it went off. She fell and never stirred. I was frightened and altogether unnerved. And I got on my bicycle and rode away. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.